I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. When writer Emily Tampkin was little, she created a whole imagined life for her Barbie and Ken dolls. We sent these Barbies to college. They had different careers. They took extended family trips together. They had a trailer that we would load the Barbies up into for road trips. Barbie was always the star of the show. And in all of her imaginary plot lines, Emily can only remember her Ken doll playing one featured part. In the 90s, when a sexual harassment case came before the Supreme Court, I somehow, as like a nine-year-old, found out about this and had my Barbie take her boyfriend Ken to court for sexual harassment. What was the outcome of the case? Yeah, of course Barbie won. (laughs) Emily recently wrote about the history of the Barbie doll for Smithsonian Magazine. She also said that in her own play, the character of Ken took something of a backseat in Barbie's pink convertible. I think that my Ken's sort of fell into the traditional Ken paradigm where he was always in relation to Barbie. I can't remember ever having a Barbie game where the plot centered around the Ken. So even if he was the father or the boyfriend or the husband or the professor or the teacher, whatever he was, it wasn't like, today we're going to play this really great game and it's all going to be about Ken, ever. (laughs) Sorry, sorry to Ken. Yeah, the poor guy. If Barbie was presented to girls as an aspirational ideal of womanhood, what does it say about Ken? Greta Gerwig's new film Barbie opens in a pink plastic utopia called Barbie Land. But everything changes when Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, has an existential crisis, and Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, learns about something called the patriarchy. In an interview with Jimmy Fallon last summer, Ryan Gosling talked about what it was like for him when the world found out he was playing Ken. I was uh, surprised how, you know, some people were kind of clutching their pearls about my Ken as though they ever thought about Ken for a second. (laughs) He's an accessory (laughs) and not even one of the cool ones. (laughs) From Smithsonian Magazine and PRX Productions, welcome to There's More to That, a podcast where journalists around the world bring you history, science and culture through the lens of Smithsonian Magazine. Today, we turn our attention to the Ken doll. Someone should do it. I'm Chris Klemek. Here we go. Find timeless gifts from your favorite museums at the Smithsonian Store. Shop museum-inspired jewelry, home goods, clothing, books, toys, and more. Save 10% and get free shipping when you go to smithsonianstore.com and enter the promo code PODCAST10 at checkout. All profits support the Smithsonian's mission. Remember to use code PODCAST10 when you shop smithsonianstore.com today. We spoke with Emily Tampkin just before the Barbie movie hit theaters, and just after her article came out. We had both just seen the trailer for the new movie. What's going on? Why are these men looking at me? Yeah, they're also staring at me. I wrote a companion piece to Emily's article about different Ken dolls through the years, and I wanted to compare notes about this simultaneously iconic and overlooked doll. 
It was a big reaction to the first appearance of Ken, uh, Ryan Gosling's Ken, in the trailers for the Barbie movie. Do you remember reacting to that in any particular way? With euphoria? With obsession? No, I think it's great. (laughs) I think they're really playing on the sort of, not tension, but the twist of the trope, which is that very often we have superhero movies or we have whatever the story is, and it's all about the guy, and he has this girlfriend who's not a really fully fleshed out character and who really only exists or matters insofar as she has this boyfriend. And this is exactly the reverse, right? Even in the promo for this movie, you know, it's she's everything, he's just Ken is the tagline that they're going for. And I think they gave an interview of the various people involved in this movie where they basically said, like, he only exists when she looks at him. You know what I mean? Like, Ken is only relevant insofar as he has Barbie's attention or insofar as he's connected to her. So I think that they're really playing up that dynamic. Yeah, I know Gosling on the promotional tour for this has already described Ken's occupation as beach. Mm Mm-hmm. But let's back up and let's start with Barbie before we get into her perennial plus one. She's been a doctor. She's been an astronaut. She has run for president. Every year since 92 or every presidential election year since 92. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's only appropriate that our conversation about Ken should start with Barbie because, as we say, he only makes sense relative to her. And even the name. So, you know, Barbie is invented in the 1950s. And basically, Ruth Handler, she looked at her daughter playing with paper dolls and imagining these wonderful stories for what these paper dolls might be. And it just seemed like the form of the paper doll was too flat to really carry the hopes and dreams and imaginings of her daughter. Plus, she had seen this novelty doll while traveling in Europe. It had a more buxom shape and thought, what if I put these two ideas together? And thus, Barbie was born. And Barbie takes the name from Ruth's daughter, Barbara. Two years later, when Barbie gets a boyfriend, it's just named after her son, right? So it's like, we'll give her a boyfriend. That kid that I also have. Yes. So they're named after her children, Barbie and Ken. But when Ruth Handler first came out with Barbie, one of the things that she heard from others in the toy industry was like, nobody is going to want to buy this curvy, quite adult-looking doll. We can get into the feminism of Barbie if you want, but her point has always been that Barbie is meant to suggest that girls can be whoever they want to be, right? Whatever you imagine, whatever outfit you can dream up putting on Barbie, you can be it. Mm. So in the piece, I mentioned that before an American woman ever went to space, there was an astronaut Barbie. As you say, Mm. Barbie's been a doctor. Barbie's run for president. There's also been a Barbie doll who has said that math is hard. I learned from your story that that math is hard Barbie was 1992, not, you know, 1961. Right. And there have been moments where Barbie's been in a more regressive space, like in her earlier years, she had a like a how to diet book. And there have been moments where Barbie's been more progressive when they've really tried to offer different body types for Barbie and sell Barbie in different races or have Barbie have these amazing careers. So she's gone back and forth. And Ken has kind of been along for that ride. Do we know anything about what, what's on Ken's resume? Yeah, I mean, Ken's had some careers. Beach, like, I mean. He's know, had beach. A, you know, yeah. like, the, like you can buy different Ken's, but it's also the trap of Barbie, right, is that on the one hand... She's a figure who has received ire from feminists, right? Or from just people like, what is this? She's white, she's blonde, she has this impossible figure, and she's very beautiful, and you can dress her up in different ways. But at the same time, Barbie's always breaking that mold because the clothes that they assign to her, as we talked about, are of any profession, right? And once you give a girl or boy a Barbie doll, they can play with it and have it, as Ruth Handler said, be anything, right? And do anything. And as one person I spoke to for the piece said to me, 
Often what the children imagine is far beyond what you could read on the side of the box, which I think is true. But there's a gender dynamic there. This very stereotypically feminine-looking doll breaking the mold of what people think women and girls can do. I don't know that there's the same dynamic going on with Ken because, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but like, what in this country have white men not been (laughs) raised to think they can do? Yeah. Right? So it's not like, wow, candidate Ken doesn't have the same sort of excitement (laughs) as presidential candidate Barbie. He did it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Again. Let's talk about the appearance of Ken. Can we first say what we knew about Barbie's identity prior to the introduction of Ken and then tell us about how and when Ken was introduced? Yeah, I mean... It wasn't just Ken that builds out the Barbie fam. So there's her friend Midge, there's her little sister Skipper, and then Ken. Basically, it was like, well, Barbie needs a boyfriend. But it was quite soon after. I think Ken's from 61 and Barbie's from 1959. So really, right on the heels of Barbie, we do get Ken. Yeah, She's had two years of freedom. Right, being yes. an independent doll. And then I think at some point, Mattel announced Barbie and Ken are breaking up. Or like, after 50 years, oh no, they're back together. But I don't know that the official company narrative of Barbie and Ken's relationship has dictated how most people have thought of it. You know, I will cop to this on this podcast. I had Barbies and Kens growing up and the relationship between the individual Barbies and Kens that my sister and I played with, like Mattel was not telling us what those were, right? We had a whole extended family, you know, that was us. Mattel didn't tell us to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, are you willing to share a little more about that? The lore that you and your sister invented? Yeah, we called them the Mayer family. And it was like, I had one nuclear family. She had one nuclear family. And so I guess this is what I'm saying is it didn't matter to us if Mattel said, oh, Barbie and Ken are together or not. Or like, oh, Ken's from Wisconsin. Because my Ken could have been from New Jersey and married a woman from Michigan. Actually, I did have one Barbie go to the University of Michigan. That was all invented by us. So Ken stands, don't worry. He's been given a much richer story than has been afforded to him by his company, by the families who have played with him across the United States and the world. Was Michigan her first choice or safety school? No, University of Michigan's a great school. This was this individual Barbie's first choice. I think I had that Barbie become a teacher. (laughs) Emily has spent a lot of time thinking about the racial politics of Barbie. She writes about this in her book, Bad Jews, A History of Jewish Politics and Identities. It turns out that even when the Barbie universe expanded to other body types and skin tones, it didn't necessarily change the minds of the consumers. Emily spoke with anthropologist Elizabeth Chin about this. Elizabeth Chin said, for her, if white blonde Barbie is selling more than the Asian-looking Barbie or the black Barbie, Mm. not to say that Mattel has not reinforced some of these beauty standards, but... It's consumers who are making the choices about which of those dolls they want to buy because of their own internalized prejudice Mm. and their own sense of what is and what is not beautiful. It's a bigger problem than just the company. Yeah, this is a thing that you write about in a really nuanced way in your piece about how the handlers were a Jewish family and how even for the creators of Barbie, the aesthetic of Barbie was kind of a fraught subject. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that Ruth Handler was consciously going through all of this, but I I do think it's important that it comes out of a certain point in American history. The 1950s and 1960s, and generally the post-war period in the United States, you see American Jewish families, many of them, moving out to the suburbs and having a sense of security, socioeconomic security, but also just in terms of like, we're Americans, we're securely here now in a way that they didn't have in the pre-war period. And you also see a lot of ambivalence about that. 
because there was a sense that if you're not impoverished, if you're not struggling, if you're not being persecuted, like, is that really authentically being Jewish? And meanwhile, while American Jews are grappling with their own ambivalence about what it means to now be suburban Americans, here comes Ruth Handler inventing the Barbie dream house, inventing this very stereotypical looking all-American young man, young woman doll, and literally the house with the white picket fence and selling it, commodifying it as the dream. I should also say that the post-war period is one of great ambivalence of gender roles for American Jews. Mm. This is the period where the development of the idea of the Jewish American princess comes up, of the American Jewish man as being like nerdy and whiny compared to the strong Israeli, all of this. And at the same time, you have Barbie and Ken who are like classic, the all-American man and the all-American woman. At the same time, the American Jews are sort of like, well, you know, what does it mean to be an American Jewish man or an American Jewish woman? Yeah, what this makes me think about is, you know, someone who grew up playing with superheroes and reading comic books mm-hmm. and stuff when you and your sister were playing with your Barbies. And then subsequently, as an adult, I read about how all of the superheroes who are, you know, dominant in the culture now, all created by Jewish writers and artists. Mm-hmm. Most famously, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster creating Superman in the 30s. They create this invulnerable, you know, fantasy man kind of in the same way that Barbie is this impossible physical totally. ideal a generation later. Yes, totally. I think that's a great comparison. So how have Barbies changed and adapted with the times? When do we start to see Barbies with different skin tones, hairstyles, things like that? Yeah, well, in 1968, Barbie gets a Black friend, and this coincides with the civil rights movement, and it's only later that a Black Barbie, like, proper, is put on the shelves. They've gone back and forth through the years. There, there have been pushes at various points to be like, look at our diverse range of dolls. Several years ago, almost a decade ago now, I think, there was a big push to put out Barbie dolls mm. of different body shapes and breaking with this idea that, oh, she has this perfect, unattainable figure. I think Barbie has been used as a stand-in, as a women's rights protest. This is several decades ago. And there's signs that are like, I'm not your Barbie doll. You know, it's a sign that you can't put this hyper-feminine pressure onto me as a woman, which, again, I do understand, even if Mattel would say, like, you could be anything. That's the whole point. And by the way, I think we could say the same for Ken's body, right? Which is not realistic for most men. Yeah. A lot of Barbie's different careers seem to reflect an attempt to keep current with the times on the part of Mattel in the 1980s when movies like 9 to 5 are coming out and foregrounding this idea of women acquiring more influence in in white-collar environments. We get Barbie in a pink kind of power suit. It's day-to-night Barbie, so she has a pink suit and she can wear it to the office and then she can wear it out on the town. Okay, it's exactly as you say. It's the 80s. It's this mm-hmm. moment of like the business woman like working. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is there a similar attempt to make Ken multifaceted to reflect his professions? Yeah. Look, you can buy Kens in different careers and who have done fun different things. I think moving forward, what I don't know that we've seen enough of is Barbie and Ken come from a time in which we thought of gender as pretty binary. You know, it's a very heteronormative projects. You have girl Barbie, you have boy Ken, and the assumption is that they're going to date. And so I don't know that we've seen Mattel play with like pride, you know, as much as one might think given where we are culturally in this moment, or as people increasingly publicly identify as non-binary or as gender fluid. To have a progressive Ken in the same way that we've had a progressive Barbie would look different, right? It wouldn't be like, you can be a doctor. It would be like you can be a teacher, which is a very feminized profession. You can be a stay-at-home dad. You can be a caretaker. Because Barbie and Ken exist in the world, and the world puts different pressures on men and on women, some are the same, but Mm. many are different. What looks progressive for 
the female presenting toy is going to be different than what looks progressive for the Ken. It all started at the dance. Barbie, the famous teenage fashion model doll by Mattel, felt that this was to be a special night. And then it happened. She met Ken. And somehow... To get a better understanding of where Ken has been and where he might go in the future, Emily and I sat down together and watched some ads for different Ken dolls over the years. We started with Ken's debut in 1961. Now Ken and Barbie meet for lunch at school, go to fraternity parties, and just relax together. Think of the fun you'll have taking Barbie and Ken on dates, dressing each one just right. Get both Barbie and Ken and see where the romance will lead. It could lead to this. Okay, what I want listeners to know is that having just watched that ad, Barbie looks great. And early Ken was looking kind of rough. The plastic hair. Yeah. So Ken did great in asking Barbie out at that dance. We can hear both strains or threads of what we've been discussing in that ad. She's a teen fashion model at a dance. Famous teen fashion model. She's a famous teen fashion model. They're at a dance and they go for lunch. If you look at the video, they're dressed in this very 1950s, all-American, clean-cut garb. Mm -hmm. They're getting married. They end up at the aisle. I think in part this is meant to sell different outfits, which was yes. another part of Ruth Handler's genius, really, was that like you can buy one doll and then have all of these different outfits that you need to buy for her. You'll need to buy Barbie's park walk outfit or Barbie's bridal gown. I was thrilled to learn in my research about Superstar Ken. This is uh, 1977. The box is trumpeting his handsome movie star face and the fact that he is more poseable than ever, which turns out to mean that he can swivel his neck. Um, Love that. <laughs> Love yeah, that for yeah, Superstar exactly. Ken. If you want to dance like John Travolta, you got to be able to move your, your neck a little. Right, exactly. <laughs> Has a slightly more animated facial expression than prior Ken's. He looks like he maybe knows more than he's telling and he's got, like, I guess I would have called it a leisure suit, but this blue big lapel, you know, kind of bell-bottom thing with the giant belt buckle, which was described in the box as a celebrity jumpsuit. Not a term that I had encountered before, but came with like a child-sized ring, I guess, so that the kid buying the doll could wear the same ring that Ken had on. Ken and Ken's owner finally get some, some fashion attention as well. Let's hear another piece of archival audio that gets into the increasing sophistication of the hair on these dolls. Who are those great-looking dolls? It's Quick Curl Barbie and Mod Hair Ken. Pretend they're starring in a movie. Style Barbie's Quick Curl hair instantly with her curler. Or brush it into a flip and it stays. Put a mustache on Ken and make believe he's the bad guy. Or sideburns and play he's the hero. It's fun pretending they're movie stars, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Quick Curl Barbie and Mod Hair Ken dolls with their own accessories, each sold separately from Mattel. There's some aspersions about men with facial hair there. <laughs> Pretend he's a villain. Mustaches are really having a moment right now, too. I love at the beginning where they're like, who are those great looking dolls? You know full well that they are Barbie and Ken, Mattel ad. Don't you even pretend. First of all, what amazing leaps and bounds we've made in doll hair technology by the 70s that we have Quick Curl Barbie. I think now looking back, and maybe at the time, probably for some at the time as well, this is very racialized. Yeah. Like this is a certain kind of hair that is being held up as, look how wonderful this is. And I honestly had this totally hair Barbie in 1992. I had the same thought where it's like, oh, look how long the hair is, regardless of all these other Barbies of professions and ethnicities that have been sold. Totally hair Barbie is, I believe, still the best selling. And also we should say that like, yes, in 1968, we have Barbie entering her civil rights moment. But a few years later, we have Quick Curl Barbie. So I, I like I don't want listeners of this program to walk away from is the idea that like 
yes, in the 50s, it was a little traditional, but then we've just been on a progressive sprint ever since. Like, absolutely not. I think Barbie and Ken's relationship to feminism, femininity, careers versus whatever that was, like, ebbs and flows. All right, so that was 1973. Uh, 1982 is when we get to sensational Malibu Ken, and there was a sort of blonde-haired, blue-eyed version of this doll and a Hispanic version. The black sensational Malibu Ken had the rooted hair, had an afro. You know, it wasn't just like a molded plastic helmet glued onto his head. Right. And then after the initial production run, apparently never reappears. Like, the black sensational Malibu Ken is apparently much sought after for his rarity, but also the hair. hmm I mean, we talk about, like, Barbies of different skin color, but hair is also racialized. And so I think it speaks well of Mattel that they put that attention to detail. Granted, it took them, like, 25 years to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's look at a, an ad for Sport and Shave Ken uh, from 1979. Here it comes, Wet the play razor, and you can take off Ken's beard and mustache. Then put it on again with this beard marker. Better fix your hair. I'm Ken. Nice beard, Ken. It tickles beauty secrets, Barbie. <laughs> Sport and shave Ken doll with two play razors and a beard marker. Beauty secrets Barbie doll is sold separately. New from Mattel. Okay, so we should note that even in this ad where you're making Ken shave, the ad shows two little girls playing with the Ken. Yeah. But they're accompanied by their fathers, presumably, right? We see two adult men kind of, yeah. Just looking on approvingly as their daughters (laughs) shave their Ken doll's faces and then draw the beard on again. Yeah. Do you think it's the expectation? Well, you know, certainly these young women are going to have to know how to shave a man's face at some (laughs) point. It's also just like (laughs) someone of Mattel thinking like, what do men do? They shave. (laughs) 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 What are some activities Ken should do? Yeah. Okay, so then in 1996, we have cool shaven Ken. Multiple generations of shavable Kens. One very cool day, new cool shaven Ken gives Barbie a kiss. His beard tickles her teeth. Time to shave. Lather up. <laughs> shave his beard off. He looks so nice. He smells so good. Because he wears old spice. What a hunk. He so good. Barbie kisses him twice. <laughs> shave him again and again. Shaving Ken doll's beard disappears with warm water. Barbie so I think there would be a much more ethnically ambiguous Ken. I, I noticed that, that too. Yeah. And olive skinned. Boy, that poor man is just not going to have any skin left on his face. <laughs> so that's 1996, which is a few years after this, the saga of Earring Magic Ken. Mattel's official line was that this was an attempt to modernize Ken based on the results of a survey that was conducted among their customers. But the Ken that was issued had most famously the earring, but, you know, a leather vest, a mesh shirt, dramatic transformation in in wardrobe from prior Kens. What do you think Mattel might have been responding to circa 1993 to give Ken such a dramatically different new look? I don't know what the survey said, but I think they were trying to acknowledge that polo wearing Ken that we saw in 1961 when Barbie first got her boyfriend, that was not how people were dressing anymore. Or just to acknowledge that there's different sorts of ways that people dress. You know, the 90s were such an interesting time politically in the United States that I think perhaps there was some backlash that they didn't expect or that it was read as being more sexualized than they intended. But I think Mattel has always attempted to stay relevant 
you know, and mm-hmm. how Barbie and Ken stay relevant and stay a part of the conversation. And that's reflected in how they dress, even if their careers haven't changed and they're still shaving. I will be very interested to see sales from the Barbie movie, right? Because what I think is really funny about the way they're doing this is that Ryan Gosling is imbuing his Ken with such personality. Even as you say, nobody ever thinks about Ken. Clearly made a very memorable Ken. They're making a line of toys that will go with the movie. And I'm curious to see how the Ken dolls do, you know? And also the discourse that comes out of the movie, what part will be about Ken? Thank you so much for talking Barbie and Ken with us, Emily. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me. To read Emily Tampkin's feature story about the history of Barbie and my piece about groundbreaking Ken dolls through the years, visit smithsonianmag.com. We also have links in our show notes. And we're closing out the show as we do every episode with a little extra bit of info from my colleagues at Smithsonian Magazine. This installment of The Dinner Party Fact is best served during dessert. Hello, this is Ted Scheinman. I'm a senior editor at Smithsonian Magazine, and I'm here with a fun dinner party fact about chocolate, and specifically about cacao, the beans from which chocolate is made. The first European to taste cacao was probably Christopher Columbus, and this would have been in 1502 off the coast of Yucatan, and it would have been during Columbus's fourth and final voyage. Columbus sees cacao beans in a Maya trading canoe, and he thinks they're almonds, but then he reaches out and like tastes one and is repulsed by the unexpected bitterness. So Columbus not immediately a fan of chocolate, or at least of cacao. The Spanish were remarkably guarded about their methods for processing and cooking chocolate throughout the 16th century and into the 17th century, such that when they went public in the 18th century, they really, really dominated this European trade in cacao and also had avoided a significant degree of competition by not telling everyone how magical these beans were. So it's sort of a magic bean story, which I love. There's More to That is a production of Smithsonian Magazine and PRX Productions. From the magazine, our team is me, Deborah Rosenberg, and Brian Wally. From PRX, our team is Jessica Miller, Genevieve Sponsler, Adriana Rosas-Rivera, Terrence Bernardo, and Edwin Ochoa. The executive producer of PRX Productions is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our music is from APM Music. I'm Chris Klemek. Thanks for listening.